Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week it is wonderful to have with us Rabbi Danny Nevins, who is dedicated to exploring the sacred realm of Torah and its intersection with contemporary ethics, culture, and technology. He was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and he is currently the head of school of Golda Oak Academy, and that has been since 2021, where he dedicates himself to support the faculty and students in the creation of a truly outstanding and warm Jewish learning environment. And previous to that, he was at JTS itself as the Paul Resnick, Dean of the Division of Religious Leadership. He writes responsive on topics of contemporary halakha, wonderful essays, prayers, and Torah commentaries, many of which can be found at his own wonderful website, rabbinevins.com. Wonderful to have you with us, and we look forward to exploring Vayachi together. It's really a cryptic type that we have this week's Sedra. And I really wonder, though, what is the final judgment that we encounter on Jacob's life? And really, what legacy does he bequeath to us? Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And I'm looking forward to talking Torah with you and through, by extension, with your listeners. Yes, the word Vayechi, it's simple enough. He lived, it describes the, the sunset of Jacob's life and career as a patriarch. But of course, it's a it's an important word that asks the question of, well, how did he live? And it's also a bit of a euphemism, because after all, this is the portion that is mostly focusing on the end of his life and on his death even and his burial. So when it says Vayechi, it raises the question, not just how did he live physically, but what was his legacy? And in this, it's reminiscent a little bit of an earlier Torah portion, Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, which famously begins with the death of Sarah, which maybe it's just euphemistic language. Instead of saying she she died, we say she passed on, or this is how long she lived. Her life came to an end, as we sometimes say today. But even though the portion that portion talks about the death of Sarah and indeed the death of Abraham as well, it is also very much about legacy. And perhaps this leads us to this great idea that the rabbis have, which is that the righteous are alive even after they die. Whereas the wicked are dead even when they're still physically alive. You find that in the Talmud in Brachot 18a. There's a nice way of saying it. Elu tzadikim chayim. These uh, righteous people are called alive even when they've died. And you've got even a, a statement said in the Talmud elsewhere in Ta'anid 5b, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, that Jacob never really died. Vinu lomate. The rabbis say, what do you mean he didn't die? The Torah itself describes his death. It describes his embalming. It describes his being transferred for burial to Marat HaMachbelah, cave in heaven. So they say, what it means is really it has to do with the verse, which describes the children of Jacob. 
And Mazarol Bechayim, Afu Bechayim, just as his children are still alive, so is he still alive. And so, in a sense, then Jacob's legacy is really about his children, his descendants. He lives through us. And that's the force of the modern song, Am Yisrael Chai Oda Vinu Chai, the people of Israel are alive, and our ancestor Jacob is still alive through us. And so we have this sense of legacy, which is found not only in a reflection on what he accomplished in his life, but also what he created with a family of 12 sons and one daughter, 70 souls who came to Egypt and arose from slavery centuries later as a mighty nation to conquer the land and, in a sense, to conquer the world, to create a Torah, which would become a Torah that would guide societies around the world for millennia to come. And so what's Jacob's legacy? It's what he did as a person, but it's very much more about what he created in a nation and truly in a civilization. Thank you for that fantastic opening. And as you say, we come really to his passing, but there's no other scene really like it that we encounter of the patriarch as he is surrounded on his deathbed by his 12 sons. What do you make there of his final testament to them? as he addresses their lives and their deeds. It's such a remarkable scene. It's cinematic. You can almost picture this large family gathered around the dying patriarch's bed. I think it probably it's cinematic because it set a type, a genre that was followed by much literature. In fact, there were later books written. There was the Testament of Jacob, which was in the the apocryphal literature, which sort of plays up on this. But even within the Torah itself, you've got an echo of it, because at the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses is blessing the people, this is the blessing which he blesses the people of Israel, he blesses them as tribes, using the names of their eponymous ancestors, describing them as Judah and Benjamin and Joseph and so on. And so What you've got here is this beautiful scene, but is it really so beautiful? Is this set of blessings the one that you would expect to hear? Now, the rabbis want it to be all positive, and they have Jacob looking at his 12 sons and having this sort of doubt. What kind of boys are they, and what kind of life are they going to live? My grandfather, Abraham, he had a son, Ishmael, who went off the pathway. And my father, Isaac, he had a son, Esau, who also went on a different path. I wonder... Could it be that all 12 of my sons are actually going to follow the way of the Lord? And one of the most brilliant and lovely midrashim, the the children say in response to his question, Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai, the Lord is in fact our God, Adonai, one God for all of us. To which he responded, Baruchim Kvod Machutoli Lamved, thank God you all are with me. So the origin of our credo of the Shema, according to this Midrash, actually comes from this deathbed scene where the 12 sons reassure their father that, yes, actually, we're with you in your faith. But there's a darker side to this scene. First of all, Jacob announces to them that he's going to reveal to them something of their future. He says, I will give you my what's going to happen at the end of days. And he doesn't really deliver on that. Rabbis notice this and they wonder what happened here. And they say he wanted to reveal to them the kates, the end of time. 
Vinistam Mimenu, but it was hidden from him, or even the divine presence abandoned him at that moment. You find this in the Talmud in Psachim 56a and Bereshit Rabbah, one of the early Midrashim and the later Midrashim and the commentaries of Rashi. But the question is why, if he wants to share with them their future, is that hidden from him? Perhaps it's because the future isn't determined, that we have free will. And Jacob is trying to show them like a divine view of the world, but we have to find out what our lives mean in our own good time and through our own mistakes and our own changes. And to tell them too much would in a way deprive his children of the opportunities he's had to grow from being a heel grabber and Yaakov to being someone who struggles not with people, but with God and who stands upright, Yashar El, upright before God. I think there's another piece to it, which is that Jacob's not clear that he trusts his sons. His first son, Reuben, he curses more than he blesses. He says that he's unstable and he alludes to this dark incident, which the Torah itself seems to edit out of Reuben apparently trying to sleep with Jacob's concubines before his father's even died, reminiscent a little bit of the scene after King David dies. And then he's worried about his sons, Shimon and Levi, who are these violent tribes, and he scatters them among the people, which is a curious thing because Levi, we know about them being scattered. The Levites won't inherit land and they'll be scattered around. But what about Simon? They, Simon is assigned a territory, but apparently Simon may have disappeared later in Jewish history. So that's something for the scholars, modern Bible scholars to look at. And in fact, the boys don't really trust each other either. After they bury Jacob up in heaven, they come back and they're terrified of Joseph. And they say, make us your slaves, just don't kill us. And he weeps at their distrust, but he also understands it. And he says, yeah, you guys really did mean me wrong, but God was in control. And now I'm going to take care of you. And he speaks to their hearts. In fact, there's something called intra-biblical exegesis, when one biblical text speaks to another. If you think about Isaiah chapter 40, which we read the Shabbat after not of Tishabah, comfort you, comfort my people, Yomar Alokechem, Dabru Alev Yushalayim. The QLH, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. And that seems to be an allusion to here where it says, that he comforts them and speaks to their heart. So there's hard feelings at this moment between Jacob and his sons, between the sons themselves, but there's also the seed of reconciliation, which makes it ultimately a redemptive scene and a very inspiring one. Let's maybe come to Jacob's blessing to. Joseph, do you see that reveals about how and maybe whether their relationship has changed? When Jacob hears that Joseph is coming to visit him, he sits up in bed and you get the sense of the portentousness of this moment that Jacob wants to speak to Joseph as his father, but he's also sitting up in a way recognizing Joseph's rear position physically reenacted as Joseph stands over his father's bed, Joseph in the prime of life, Joseph with political power, financial power, Joseph in whose hands the whole future of the family rests. So Jacob is the patriarch, the father, but as often happens at the end of a long life, he's diminished and Joseph is enhanced. And so there's a bit of a role reversal. And yet, Jacob very much wants to hold on to his authority. So he asks Joseph to bring his sons. 
and says, I'm going to bless them. And there's this moment when he switches his hands and he puts the right hand, the dominant hand on the head of the younger son, Ephraim, and the left hand on the older son, Menashe's head. Joseph tries to rearrange his father's hands. That's not right, dad. you got to give the older son the bigger blessing. Even though, ironically, of course, Jacob himself was the younger twin and had outshined Esau. And Joseph, of course, is also one of the younger sons and has risen in power. And it seems like both generations are struggling with the same issue of primacy. I mean, what does it take to be prime to be primary? And in fact, it will play out this way. Ephraim will become the dominant tribe of the north of Israel. Menashe is very much a second-rate tribe in a way. But what else is going on here is that by adopting the two sons of Joseph as his own sons, Jacob is in effect turning Joseph into the Bechor, into the firstborn. Because of primogeniture, there was this idea that the firstborn got Pishnaim, it got a double portion because they were responsible for the dependent members of the family. And so even though Reuben is the firstborn, will be displaced by Judah, who will become the one that all the brothers will recognize, as his blessing says, and will have the shavit, will have the scepter and the mechokek, all these signs of royalty. Joseph is the one who has two sons who are each given an equal share. And in that way, also, even though there are 12 sons, the truth is that there need to be the tribe of Levi, by not being given land in the future, will turn it into an 11 shares in the land of Israel. So by doubling Joseph's shares, you have the stability of 12. But there's something else going on here. And I'd like to just add this one more thought, which is that there's a lot of ambiguity in Joseph's life. There was a lot of ambiguity in Jacob's life. Both of them had dreams of grandeur. Both of them had fears and were nearly killed. Um, both of them were admired by others, by both men and by women. Both of them have are the subject of jealousy. I think that when Jacob sees Joseph, he sees himself in a way. A dreamer who believed in himself, got through a lot of close scrapes, and somehow managed to be out on top. And so I think that when he sees his son, his beloved son, Joseph, I think Jacob is in a way also having a vision of his own life and what it has meant to be a person who's had to fight for everything, who's not always done that which is popular, has even done things which perhaps people might think of as being less than less than I don't know upright, and yet has believed that there was it was all necessary and that it would all work out in the end. And in a way, I think he was right. He was vindicated in this moment. Let's maybe pick up on, I suppose, the legacy of Joseph. And the rabbis are really in two minds about him. What's your assessment of the rabbis? The rabbis, they do overall look at him as Yosef HaTzadik, Joseph the Righteous. But they see some of the, the spoiled kid of his youth playing with his hair. They imagined him dancing about in his fancy outfit and lording it over his brother. And in fact, later in life, when he favors Benjamin, his full brother, with the extra garments, the rabbis are astonished. Has he learned nothing? So there's that. Joseph 
is criticized by the rabbi sometimes by his conduct with Mrs. Potiphar. According to one midrash, he came back to the house one day knowing it was empty except for her and fully intending to actually carry out the adultery with her. But having this vision of his father that sort of saved him, shamed him into into celibacy or whatever, into not sleeping with her. Um, So the rabbis do see a person who's got flaws of character, has temptations, but mostly they see a genius, a chacham, and they see a righteous person. In later Jewish history, we think of Joseph as the model court Jew, the person who goes into the very epicenter of power, into the place of greatest danger and perhaps even of evil. He's the shtadlan, the court Jew, who sets a model for later Mordecai and Esther, and then in the Middle Ages, many different sages, and, and also in the modern era of people who have gone into the court, the Jew in the White House, let's say, who there was a recent case like that. Just to wave the English flag, Israeli. Of, yes, of yeah, Disraeli was, he actually became the, the prime minister. But then there's, of course, the mystical side of Joseph, where he's no longer a person or even a prototype, but he becomes part of the divine drama of the Sfirot, uh, because there's a verse in Proverbs that says, that righteous is the foundation of the world. He becomes Joseph, who's called the Tzadik, the righteous by the rabbis anyway, becomes known as the ninth of the Sfirot. He's got beauty and he he becomes channel of all the blessings from the upper eight Sfirot into the world and to the divine intercessor, which is the Shekhinah, the tenth of the Sfirot. And so he's a life force. He's a Ben Porat Yosef. He's this sort of this fruitful child. He's a source of vitality. If I could stray a little bit from Judaism, he's a little like Shiva in in Hindu mythology, where a sort of this almost a phallic, generative, part destructive, part regenerative force. And maybe that shouldn't be said, but I just see in Joseph, he's not seen as like this refined, reflective person who's always doing kindness. And he's actually seen as a person who is a man with a plan, someone who sees what needs to be done, does not does not wilt. When others are afraid to act, he acts. He will speak to the most powerful man in the world, to Pharaoh, and manage to manipulate it for the situation, for the benefit of his people. I will say one other negative thing about Joseph. You know that during the famine, Joseph orchestrates the the turning of all the people, the farmers of Egypt, into serfs who have to actually sell their land, their cattle, and their bodies to to Pharaoh. And although at the moment that might be maybe was seen as a good thing, of course it set the model of enslavement in Egypt, which will come to affect his own people. And things the rabbis can see that they're not easy binaries here. The person who is powerful and resourceful can create damage at the same time that he creates riches and protection for his own family. Does it in the end actually cause his family to suffer for centuries? It's hard to know what to make as our final verdict of Joseph. Maybe just finally on Joseph, I wonder if you see him as perhaps more accessible than his ancestors, perhaps in the way that God is not so 
directly involved or he doesn't have that that dialogue and yeah he's perhaps very contemporary for us hi jimmy a celebrity in a way that maybe you don't think of his ancestors acting he's there in the top royal court he's riding around in his chariot he's making policy for the people he's in contact with other nations and it seems to be even working on foreign policy he's a political figure a businessman a schemer he's very much accessible as a sort of a modern person and someone that we could imagine living in our day it's true that he does refer to god fairly often in in naming his kids in um in speaking to mrs potiphar about why he can't sin against god in saying to pharaoh that i don't interpret dreams god interprets the dreams he does he just accord to the divine realm true power and wisdom and yet he also sets himself up as the channel for that he says something interesting he says to his brothers you tried to hurt me it's true but god sent me for michia the word which means to be to cause life to happen it's a mechaya we might say in more modern or even yiddish inflected hebrew god sent me to be a force for life and in that way i think it connects to the name of this parsha vayachi which he lived refers to jacob but it also in the sense refers to joseph who not only lived but also allowed others to live he became the source of vitality for his family and in that way he created a healing for his family as well because they came down starving and they emerged to be powerful and they grew into a nation there're going to be a lot of vicissitudes to come of a descent into slavery and a final emergence again into freedom by the joseph sets a pattern to not give up hope even in a difficult and dark situation maybe finally as we draw beresha uh, to a close and we start of course next week with our next book as we journey this year through between the lines what do you see as maybe the overarching lesson that we take with us as we leave beresha behind some years ago i had this insight when i was reading the story of cain and abel and in cain and abel before the crime before the murder God says to Cain, what are you doing? Why is your face fallen? Don't be so jealous of your brother. You can hold it in. But he doesn't, of course. He kills Abel, and God asks him, where is your brother Abel? And Cain says this terrible line, Hashomer achi anochi, am I my brother's keeper? And it's an insolent question, but it's also an insightful question. Maybe Abel was Cain was thinking, I don't know, am I responsible for other people? am i responsible even for my own family and i think of that question is something that like a bell that keeps reverberating and down the generations and it seems to me each generation in the book of genesis is asked that question implicitly again and each time the answer is pretty much no there are some exceptions abraham comes to the aid of lot in chapter 14 when lot is taken captive he's not his brother but he says anashim achim anach that we are like brethren so he does act like a brother but overall the siblings take advantage of each other throughout the book and it's really only last week in vayigash when judas says to joseph not realizing it's joseph look 
I can't allow you to take Benjamin as your slave. Take me instead, and I will be your slave. And just let my brother go home to his father. I couldn't, I couldn't handle seeing my father lose another son. And at that moment, when Judah actually takes responsibility, becomes a Shomer Achim, then the book, in a way, is repaired. This terrible damage at the beginning of the book is healed. And I think that's what allows the next book of the Torah to open, because we we have this image of Miriam uh, looking out and guarding over her infant brother, Moses, and following him down the dangerous Nile and speaking very with great resolve to the daughter of Pharaoh and coming up with an entire plan to save her brother's life. And then it's not only Miriam, when Aaron comes to meet Uh, Moses, after he's been selected by God to be the sort of leader of this redemption, it says, Aaron is going to see you and be happy in his heart. And the rabbis say, how remarkable that the older brother, Aaron, would see that his younger brother has risen in prominence. Now he's going to become a spokesman for his kid brother. And what emotion will he feel? He'll feel joy in his heart, joy for his brother. And the rabbi say one of my favorite midrashim, that the heart that felt that pride and joy in someone else's rise will merit to wear the, the breastplate, which would be inscribed with names of the 12 tribes. Only a heart which is not jealous, only a heart which can rejoice in the strength and victory of another um, can merit to actually represent the people. And in a way, the book of Exodus is linked to the book of Genesis in the sense that we are growing up as a people to the point where we can have the Ahafta Lerecha Kamocha of loving your neighbor as yourself, which will be the third book of the Torah, the centerpiece of the Torah, the beating heart of the Torah, is actually getting to the point of being altruistic and loving towards another as one is towards oneself. That is perhaps the deepest message of the Torah, which is to help us see our lives not only in protecting of ourselves, but as more expansive in protecting others. Thank you so much for striking such a positive and hopeful note as we draw Bereshit to a close. And also, of course, as we begin 2023. So thank you for exploring with us today. Thank you for inviting me. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content on our mothership, jewishquest.org. And we look forward to meeting again next week as we begin our exploration through Shemot. <music>